Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. I hope you had a great week. As always, Let's Talk Micro is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Pandora, GoodPods. Wherever you listen to your podcast, you can find Let's Talk Micro. As far as social media, I am on Instagram as Let's Talk Micro, no apostrophe, and on Twitter as Let's Talk Micro 1. I am also on LinkedIn as Luis Plaza. So go ahead and follow, give suggestions, you know, possible podcast topics, leave any feedback. It is always welcome and appreciated. And in social media, I like to post pictures of organisms and I always give updates as to when the next episode is coming out. And if you haven't checked out the previous episode, go ahead and do so. It was an interview episode with Dr. Jennifer Dean Barr from Los Angeles and Dr. Amy Lieber from Ohio. And it was regarding the challenges that face, you know, that microbiology is facing, which are staffing, training programs, solutions. As of right now, there's a shortage of personnel, not only in microbiology, in the lab as a whole, but the article that we discussed and what the interview was about is about shortages in microbiology. So we talked about how the number of medical laboratory science programs have diminished. We also talked about how it takes time to properly train someone. In the interview, well, in the article, there was something said, which is very true, and this is that training microbiologists does not happen overnight. And this is something, you know, it, it's so true. And it's something that people in the lab, you know, everyone needs to understand. And sometimes, you know, it might be a little challenging if you don't have a, if you don't work in microbiology. It is, it's different from other areas in the lab. You know, there are, there's a lot of technical knowledge. There are a lot of gray areas. It's not like, hematology, chemistry, and I always like to mention this because in those areas, it's more linear, right? You have a sample, something happens to it, you recollect it, the troubleshooting, so you can achieve your results within your shift unless, you know, you have a slide that needs to go to a pathologist or, or you're sending your sample to another hospital. But with micro, you have all these technical terms, all these biochemicals, these organisms, and even though you study them, you know, we always like to say that these bugs, they don't go to school. So they do whatever they want, meaning that they can have atypical presentations of media, atypical susceptibility patterns. So there's a lot of terms, a lot of things that take place in micro. And the thinking has to be different because your organisms have to grow. So you always have to think in times of this will take me a day. So what can I do to make sure that the next day I can continue my work and it doesn't cost me a day? And I have talked about this in episodes before. So this is something that everyone needs to understand. So training microbiologists does not happen overnight. And, you know, that's the secret to being a good microbiologist. Of course, you know, educating yourself, knowing your organisms, knowing your media. But one of the secrets of being a good microbiologist is just repetition. You can't be good at it, at it if you don't sit down, if you don't do the work. You know, we get proficient by seeing these organisms over and over and over again. Many gram stains, 
maybe many biochemical testing. So microbiology, it's all about repetition and it takes time. And then we have other factors like even though we don't have many programs, many medical laboratory science programs, then we know a class of 30 they graduate, maybe we get two or three micro. So that's another challenge. So it was, it was good. It was a good episode talking about these problems and solutions. And you, the audience, if you're a medical laboratory scientist or you're a microbiologist and you have some ideas on what can we do to make sure that, you know, we help alleviate this staffing problem, I'm always open to hearing your suggestions and your ideas. So go ahead and send them to Let's Talk Micro at Outlook.com. And hey, maybe you don't know, it could be a good podcast episode. So you might, might get to be a guest on Let's Talk Micro. So you can send any suggestions to Let's Talk Micro at Outlook.com. You know, and this is a real problem. And like I said, it's not only affecting microbiology, but it affects the lab as a whole. So to summarize, there are many challenges that must be overcome in order to be fully staffed in the micro lab with properly educated and trained personnel. So on today's episode, I want to talk about Streptococcus pneumoniae. So the last time I went over an organism, I talked about Enterococcus and VRE, which is vancomycin-resistant Enterococcus. Those are episodes 53 and 54 of the last season. So go ahead and check them out if you haven't done so already. So let's go ahead and talk about Streptococcus pneumoniae or Strep pneumo. So if you hear me saying Strep pneumo, it's just, you know, shortening it. So it's just, it's Streptococcus pneumoniae. So this is a gram-positive cocci in pairs. It is a definitely a serious organism. It is one of the leading causes of morbidity and mortality. It is the primary cause of community-associated pneumonia, meningitis, and otitis media. The last one being actually the most common infection seen with streptococcus pneumoniae in children up to three years old. So what about pneumonia? So it causes 95% of all bacterial pneumonias. It is also the major cause of bacterial meningitis in the United States. And we're getting technical. It has a polysaccharide capsule that is associated with its virulence. The strains that are non-encapsulated are avirulent. So now that you're thinking about what, what would a colony that's encapsulated will look like on agar. Well, if you're thinking mucoid, then yes, you are correct. So streptococcus pneumoniae, the strains that are encapsulated, they are mucoid on the agar. And of course, you know, as, as a microbiologist, when you see this stuff on the, uh, on, on growing on media and you see the morphologies and stuff, you know, I always find it fascinating. But it's not to say I always have the understanding that this is serious for a patient. But as a tech, when you see this stuff, you know, you commit it to memory and you get more proficient. So we always, we are excited in a way when we see organisms like this growing on agar because we can learn the morphologies, we can remember them, and it makes us better at our jobs. But we definitely know that this is serious for the patient. So seeing the stuff on plates growing, 
we get better at it because, you know, we start seeing them and we, you know, we know them and incorporate it into our, into our knowledge. But of course, you know, it is serious for the patients. But yes, you know, encapsulated strains, they tend to be mucus, mucoid. And that's also why it makes you think about Cryptococcus neoformans, right? That's encapsulated. And when you see it on the plate, it is mucoid. So you might not see a strain like this in your hospital, maybe, depending if you're a, a small facility. So you might see the QC strain, which is not mucoid. But some, you know, when you get it from a patient, sometimes you get these beautiful alpha hemolytic mucoid colonies. So strains that are encapsulated are virulent, and strains that are non-encapsulated, they are avirulent. And people might actually have it in their upper respiratory tract without, without it causing any harm. And according to Bailey and Scott's Diagnostic Microbiology, which is a great source that I mentioned in the podcast and that, that I use to get you know, the, the information on these organisms, according to the, that book, there is a carriage rate of 5 to 75%. It can spread to the lungs, sinuses, and middle ear. And it can also access the bloodstream and the meninges. That's why, you know, I mentioned that it causes meningitis. So if you work in a lab and you run a meningitis panel, you see that Streptococcus pneumoniae is one of the targets, right? In addition to other organisms, but you see it there. And that's the reason why you see it in this test. So Streptococcus pneumoniae also has, it has pneumolysing which is a cholesterol-dependent satellizing. And this is a virulence factor that interferes with phagocytosis. It also has phosphorylcholine, which binds receptors for certain cells, helping the spread of the organism. There is a vaccine that helps in preventing infections, and I'm just mentioning it. I know that vaccination is a, it's always a, a heated topic. But there is a vaccine for streptococcus pneumoniae. And according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, which is the CDC, there are two types of vaccines available in the U.S. One is the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, and the other one is the pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine. For the criteria such as age, any medical conditions, and more, refer to the CDC's website. So now that we know the pathogenicity, Let's go ahead and talk about colony morphology. So like I mentioned, it is a gram-positive cocci, and you see it in pairs. You know, they are lancet-shaped. So this is good to remember if you're a student, and even if you're a professional in the field. And when I talk about identifying strep pneumo in samples, I will talk more about the gram stain and why this is something that you should remember. So, but if you're a student, you know, it's, they are lancet shape, which are elongated. And you can, you hear the term used diplococci. You know, it's something that you use, but typically, I don't know, in labs that I have been in, you kind of, for gram-positive cocci, you just use gram-positive cocci in chains, in pairs, pairs and chains, clusters. So you might not use this term diplococci that much. So remember that it is lancet shape gram-positive cocci in pairs. So as far as media, it grows on blood, chocolate, P. 
PEA, it is recommended that the plates are incubated in CO2, which typically, you know, your respiratory samples and when you have you know, all these pathogens, when you have like, you know, like your Neisserium, Haemophilus, you incubate it in CO2. And I mentioned this because, you know, typically some facilities, you have urine cultures that you incubate them in non-CO2. But for Streptococcus pneumoniae, which you might see it from a blood culture or a respiratory culture, typically, or an ear culture. So those, they go on CO2. But this is the recommended atmosphere for Streptococcus pneumoniae. So the colonies are alpha hemolytic. And like I mentioned before, encapsulated strains are mucoid. It is optokin susceptible. And if you don't remember optokin, go ahead and check out episode 8 of this podcast. I go over optokin, but you remember that you have this disc, which is called the P-disc. And then you inoculate your plate, you put it there. And streptococcus pneumonia is susceptible to optokin. So using, you know, you measure the zone of inhibition. And susceptible is 14 millimeters or greater. This is something that you have to be careful about because sometimes people do leave the P-disc outside for many hours and they might not work. And I have been in, I have been breeding cultures where I see that you have a plate and they call it positive for P-disc, which is that is susceptible. So they're calling it strep pneumo. But then if you measure the zone, you might have 12 or 13. And you shouldn't, be, you shouldn't be calling it streptococcus pneumoniae if you have a zone of 12 or 13 without actually performing an, an, a method of ID, such as Molotov, Vitek, etc. Because you might have a, a streptococcus mitis or another alpha strep which are resistant to optokin. So if you are reading cultures and you have an optokin disc and you measure it's 12 or 13, you need to do an, an ID on it. But Streptococcus pneumoniae, it's susceptible to optokin and you need a zone of 14 millimeters or greater. This organism is a strep, so it's catalase negative. But there's also tests, you know, you can identify it using, like I mentioned, Vitek, Molditov. There are some tests out there that I will talk about in the next episode to identify strep pneumo. But however, there is a test that this is classic. And if you're a student, you might go over it. And maybe in your lab, because I know sometimes, you know, maybe not in the U.S., but in other parts of the, the world, you know, you still do a lot of manual tests. So there is a classic test that it is used in helping, you know, identify strep pneumo. And this is called the bile solubility test. Bile solubility test. So what is the bile solubil solubility test? So this is a test that is used to differentiate strep pneumo from other alpha strep. Strep pneumo is soluble in it, and other alpha hemolytic strep are not. The principle of this test is that a bile salt lyses strep pneumo colonies, and this is dependent on amidase, which is an intracellular autolytic enzyme. So how do bile salts do this? Well, they lower the tension between the bacterial cell membrane and the medium. And this actually accelerates the autolytic process. So how is the test performed? Well, you grow the colonies on blood agar. I mean, if you have a, a, a pure 
culture and the time, which is, you know, 24 hours or younger, you can go ahead and perform it. But if not, if you have just a few colonies, you know, you sub it to a blood agar plate and then you go ahead and incubate it. And then the next day you go ahead and perform the test. So what you do is once you have your colonies on blood agar, you place a few drops of a 10% deoxycholate solution, which is a bile, bile salt, on a colony and incubate the plate in non-CO2 at 35 to 37 degrees for 30 minutes. The colonies of strep pneumo, they are lice, and this leaves an imprint of the colony. Other alpha hemolytic strep, they do not lice, and the colonies remain intact. So this is called the spot method. There is also a 2% solution and companies, you know, like Fisher, you know, they sell both solutions and according to their site, the 10% may provide more rapid reactions, but both solutions have been tested and they work well. So you have that spot test, you have your colonies, you add your solution, and then you incubate for 30 minutes and then the colonies are lice. So that's a positive test for biosolubility. So there's also a method, which is the tube method. And for the tube method, you prepare a 0.5 McFarland suspension of the suspect colonies. Then you split it in equal parts to two tubes. In one of them, you add 0.5 ml of the deoxycholate solution. And the other tube, you leave as is. And do you know why this is? Well, you know, if you're thinking that because it is used as a control, then you are correct, right? So you have one tube where you add in the solution and the other one you don't touch so you can compare, right? Because you shouldn't see any change on the tube that doesn't have the solution. So once you do this, you incubate both tubes, same temperature, 35 to 37 degrees, and non-CO2, and then you check up periodically for up to three hours. A positive test shows clearing in the tube. And what's this? This is lysis. Whereas the control or a negative test remains turbid. And keep in mind that this is an enzymatic reaction. So like I mentioned, you know, you need older colonies might cause, you know, might give erroneous reactions, you know, inaccurate reactions. So it is recommended that, you know, you need a 24-hour culture or younger. And this not only applies to enzymatic reactions. I mean, this applies to susceptibilities and other tests. You don't want all colonies because sometimes, you know, their reactions might not be accurate. So when you're doing any type of workup, any type of setting, you know, setup for any type of test, you, need, oh, you always need a fresh culture, which is an 18 to 24-hour culture. So there you have it. You have two methods. The spot method, where you add the, the deoxycholate solution directly to the colony. Or you have the tube method, where you prepare a suspension, and then you add the solution to it. So they both require being incubated at 35 to 37 degrees in a non-CO2 incubator. So to summarize, Streptococcus pneumoniae, very serious organism, it is, you know, seen in otitis media, meningitis, pneumonia, and also, you know, there's a vaccination for it if you want it. And then it is an alpha hemolytic, 
gram-positive cocci in pairs, and remember that morphology, committed to memory, because typically, you know, the straps, you see the long chains, or you see the short chains, but this one is lancet shape, and it occurs in pairs. So remember that. It's a strep, so it's catalase negative. It is optokin susceptible. And if you haven't learned about optokin, or if you want a refresher, go ahead and check out episode 8 of this podcast. And it is soluble to bile, meaning that it will, you know, the colonies, they will lice in, in the presence of bile. And this test, you know, can be done by two methods, can be performed by two methods, which are the tube and the spot method. And that, my dear audience, is the end of this episode. I hope you enjoy learning about Streptococcus pneumoniae or Strep pneumo. As always, I enjoy sharing this information with you. Continue bringing that passion to what you do. It's so important. And continue educating yourself. It will make you better at your job. Remember, this is a great job that we have. And we have a great responsibility to our patients to make sure that we perform, you know, we give the best results. You know, we do our best out there. So bring that passion to microbiology or to things that you do. As always, stay motivated, stay safe, and of course, continue talking micro until the next time. Bye.